Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Good evening, night crew. How you guys doing tonight? Yes. I'm excited to be with you. As Pastor Travis said, my name is Scott Worthington. I get the joy of being one of the pastors here at Hope. My family and I have been here for seven or eight years. Um, if you're new here, I just want you to know God does amazing things and has done and will do amazing things through this church. I'm so privileged and excited to be a part of what God's doing here at Hope, and I hope you are too. Um, we are starting. Yeah, amen. All right. Love that. Travis mentioned it, but we're starting a two-week series uh, today called Storytellers. And this weekend and next weekend, what it looks like is we're going we're gonna to look together at God's word and look at what makes up our story. I believe every one of us has a story, and so we're going to look at what makes up our story. And then next weekend, Pastor Travis is going to unpack how do we share that with the people around us? How do we go from owning our story to becoming storytellers to the people that God has placed in our lives. And so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 uh, in just a minute. So you can flip there if you have a Bible. We're going to put it on the screen in a minute as well. But before we do, I want us to get us all around this idea of story. I believe that we are all as human beings hardwired for a story. Because we know how the story began. It says in the beginning of God's word, in the beginning, God created that I believe in the beginning, and we've seen from God's word, he spoke, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God, spoke into existence and began a story. And on the sixth day of that story, they breathed life into human beings. And so I believe it's hardwired in us to enjoy a story, and everyone around the room enjoys a great story. Over the last 24 hours, maybe 48, if you've been hiding under a rock, you have enjoyed a story. Maybe last night your family got on the couch and watched over an hour-long TV show, a story played out on your television. Or on Friday, you went to the movie theater, and on the big screen, you saw for two or three hours a movie played out, which is a story on film. If you're a reader, some people aren't, but some people love a good cup of coffee, a nice chair, and a book. And maybe you read over the pages of a novel, a story, over the last couple days. I didn't forget about my video game friends who've been doing nothing but playing video games for the last 48 hours. And uh, even our video games today are written as stories. It's no longer just standalone things. The, the video games we play today are written as stories. If you have a Snapchat, and if you don't even know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But in Snapchat, a social network that we have in today's world, is, uh, is stories that you see of your friends playing out on your phone. These snap 
stories. We are hardwired as people to enjoy a good story. And so what the next two weeks are about is us seeing from God's word that every person in this room, every person in this city, every person who bears the image of God, which is every human, has a story. The fact that you took a breath this morning when you woke up shows that God is writing your story into human existence. The fact that you're here tonight shows that God is writing your story. It's all a part of what makes up your story. We're going to look at an amazing story of a man named Saul who met Jesus on a road to Damascus. And then we'll kind of shift the focus to us and look at our individual stories. So Acts chapter 9, we're not going to, we're going to, we're going to kind of overview verses 1 through 20. It's impossible. If you know at Hope, usually we go verse by verse. If we did that for 20 verses, we would be here all night and into tomorrow, so we won't be doing that. We're going to kind of overview verses 1 through 20. We'll read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen. Here's what Acts 9.1 says. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, followers of Christ, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told what you must do. The next few verses go on to say that after this account, Saul got up and he was blinded. And nobody around him really knew what was going on. He had some guys around him, and he was all of a sudden blind. He couldn't see. And so they lead him into the very city he was going to persecute. They lead him as a blind man into the city. And then we're introduced to a man named Ananias. And it says that Ananias is a disciple of the Lord. This is a Christian living in the city of Damascus. And we introduced, we're introduced to this man, Ananias, and God comes to Ananias and says, I want you to go find Saul of Tarsus, and I want you to pray for him and heal him. And of course, like all of us, Ananias had some questions. He said in, in verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. The next couple of verses go on to say that Ananias was a faithful believer and he listened. As hard as that might have been, he listened to God and he went and found Saul and he put his hands on Saul and he prayed for Saul and he calls him brother because he knows he met Jesus. And verse 18, we pick up the story as we finish this passage. And immediately as, Saul, as, as Ananias was praying for Saul, there fell from his eyes, which is Saul, uh, something like scales. And he regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. This is an incredible story about a man who met Jesus. But what I want us to, I want us, we're going to kind of go back and forth to that story tonight, but I want us to make sure we, we keep perspective that this is not just an exclusive account of something God did one time. God is in the story-changing business. 
This is not just one amazing, miraculous story that we find in God's word and then God doesn't change stories for the rest of human history. All over the room tonight are testimonies and pictures of stories that God has changed. God is a story-changing God, and this is just one amazing account that we get to read in the pages of Scripture. But Jesus changes stories all over our city this morning. Jesus, or this evening, Jesus is changing stories. Jesus changed stories this morning all over our country. I was just in Thailand. I got back on Tuesday, and I'm standing in the room with people that I don't know their language. We don't have a lot in common, except we were changed by the same God. My story and their story changed. Jesus is in the story-changing business. And so by looking at Acts chapter 9 tonight, I want us to see that he's a story-changer. And then I want us to to understand that in our midst is that same story-changer, that we might be tellers of that story. But to truly appreciate a good story, I think we have to understand the characters of the story. This man, Saul, if you're familiar with this passage, we know that Saul is really the Apostle Paul. His conversion was so intense and so significant that all of a sudden in Acts chapter 13, the writer of Acts, which is Luke, just starts calling him Paul. Now on August 10th, 1986, my parents named me Scott, and I'm still Scott. But Saul gets saved, and it's so intense that Jesus seems it fitting to start calling him Paul. And so we know this man, Saul, who met Jesus on the road to Damascus as Paul the Apostle. Theologians have said that that the conversion of Saul is potentially the the greatest event in human history, second only to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's pretty big time. When you get saved, it's it's second only to when God became a man and dwelt among us. That's pretty huge stuff. We know that Paul goes on to write 13 letters of the New Testament. Most of the things you read in the New Testament were under the pen of Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Other than Jesus, this is the most prominent figure in our faith's history. And we just read the account, and we're going to look at it again, of when he met Jesus. John MacArthur said this, There may be no transformation as remarkable and with as far-reaching implications for history as the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So who is this man Saul? Who was this man Saul when he set out towards Damascus on this day? We learn from other parts of scripture and from history that this man, Saul, was a deeply religious Jewish man. Acts chapter 22 says that he studied under Gamaliel, which is the most respected Jewish rabbi of the day. He was tutored by the most respected Jewish rabbi. From the moment he was born and grown up, he was all about his Jewish religion. Other parts of scripture and history tell us that that Saul was a Pharisee. Now, if you're new to church and you don't really understand the word Pharisee, here's what a Pharisee is. They were the most respected and the most feared religious leaders of the day. When a group of Pharisees walked down the street, people got out of the way because they were scared and they didn't feel like they were worthy. They got out of the way. Those are Pharisees. Those are the guys that have it all together. This meant that they had large portions of the Old Testament memorized, if not the whole thing. Now, we struggle with our weekly memory verses. These guys have the entire Old Testament memorized. These guys are hard workers for religion, these these Pharisees. If you stick around hope long enough, you're going to hear something like this. It's not about do's and don'ts, but it's about a relationship with Jesus. The Pharisees thought the exact opposite. It is about the do's and don'ts. It's when I do something, when I don't do something, how I do it and what it looks like, when to do it and when not to do it. Everything is about how they were perceived by the people. They were religious and they wanted the world to know it. Rites and rituals. 
Who they were was based on how they performed. And then Jesus steps onto the scene and starts changing the world, literally flips the world upside down with his message of salvation through the Son of God. He told people that he would make their burden light. The Pharisees told people that their burden was heavy, and that's how God wanted it. Jesus starts telling people, I'll make your burden light. Come to me, all who are weary. Now think about this. It says in verse 1 that Saul was breathing murderous threats towards these people. And as I was studying this, I was thinking, why? That's not very politically correct of Saul. Saul, why can't you just do your religious thing over here and let the Christians do their religious thing over here? If you think they're wrong, let them be wrong. Why does it bother you so much? Why does it bother you so much that there's this this distance between you and them? Why does it bother you so much that their message is so different? The first time we... We, we meet this man Saul is in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, as Stephen, the first martyr for the Christian church, is literally being stoned to death because of his faith. It's a public execution, and the guys are throwing rocks at him to kill him. And it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, that the men laid their coats at the, foot, at the feet of a young man named Saul. This was not a passive, I don't care what the Christians are doing. He hated this new movement called the way. And here's why I think that is. I think before the road to Damascus, Paul heard the gospel. I think he heard the whispers in the streets and he saw these small groups of people sprouting up all over Jerusalem and all over the ancient world. And he heard that their message was an affront to who he was. He heard that these Galilean fishermen were telling people that they could come to Christ without any work of their own. They were preaching a message that said this, you can be a believer by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not of any merit of your own. And Saul was looking back at decades of work, decades of discipline, decades of doing all the right things to be in God's good graces. And he's saying, I'm not going to have it. They are preaching a message that is an affront to everything I've built my life on. And I'm going to stop it. Years later, Paul went on in Philippians chapter 3, after he met Jesus, to write about this. He basically said in Philippians 3, as he sat in a jail cell, that apart from Christ, all my accomplishments and all my discipline and all my stuff is useless. It's garbage. I think before Paul met Jesus, he knew that that's what their message meant for his life. It means nothing if they're right. So I'm going to stop these people. So this disciplined, respected, accomplished Pharisee Saul sets on a road to Damascus to wreak havoc and to be a terrorist in the city of Damascus. This is our character. Now with that in mind, I want to kind of walk through this passage really quick again. And as my elementary school teacher used to say, I want us to put our thinking cap on. A lot of times we can read uh, passages like this and we've heard a sermon preached on or we've read it ourselves and we look at it academically. I want us to look at it like a story tonight. I want us to imagine this happening in real life. Imagine in today's world, this is a newsflash on CNN. This happened. Saul is headed as fast as he can, breathing murderous threats towards Damascus. And out of nowhere, he gets knocked off his horse or his camel or his donkey, whatever he was riding, and he is on his back and he is helpless. Somebody says, Stop, you're done. Jesus is finished with allowing him to do what he's doing. 
And he gets up, and I imagine this blind person is now walking, being led by men because he's helpless into the same city he was just going to go persecute, into the same city he was just going to go wreak havoc on. Now he's walking by help because he's blind, helpless into this city. I love that. I feel like it's a subtle nuance of the Holy Spirit to show that apart from Christ, we can literally do nothing. He's going into the same city he was headed with a very, very different experience. And then there's Ananias. I love this guy. I don't know what Ananias was doing that day. He might have been playing with his kids or reading his Bible. And all of a sudden, Jesus steps in and says, hey, Ananias, I want you to go find Saul of Tarsus. He's on this particular street. I want you to go pray for him that he could be healed. Now, Ananias knew exactly who Saul was. Saul was not an unpopular figure in that time. Saul was the guy wreaking havoc on all Ananias' friends. Saul was the guy that might have killed Ananias' buddies just because they were believers. And of course, Ananias is like, God, do you not know what he did to your people in, in Jerusalem? Do you not know that right now he has the authority by the government officials to take me to prison? And you want me to go have an experience face to face with this man? Are you crazy? And I love what God says in verse 15. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Ananias saw Saul as the furthest thing from God. In God's perspective, God saw him as a chosen instrument. That was challenging for me this week. How many people in my life right now look like the furthest thing from God, but in God's perspective, they're chosen instruments? What if we started looking at our wayward children or right now our spouse that wants nothing to do with Jesus or our coworkers that mock you for being here tonight? They look like the furthest thing from God. And I'm begging that God gives me the grace to see them not as those people, but as people that he might use to turn the world upside down like Paul did. And Ananias goes and he puts his hands on Saul and he calls him brother. I mean, what bravery Ananias had. I pray that I would have done the same thing. But Ananias walks into this situation face-to-face with, people, with a guy who it, it, two days ago, three days ago, was, was breathing murderous threats against Ananias. And he prays for him, and he regains his sight. In Acts chapter 9, verse 18, the second part of it says this. And he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Verse 20 says, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. I love this. It shows Paul's personality. Paul is a driven, disciplined man, even after Jesus. Here's what happens. He's on his way to Damascus. Jesus interrupts his story, changes him, saves him, makes him blind. For three days, he just has to wait. Ananias comes, puts his hands on him, heals him. He gets up, he gets baptized, he gets some food, and he starts preaching the gospel. Love this guy. Three days ago, he hates Christians. He gets healed, he gets baptized, he gets some food because he's hungry, and he starts telling people about Jesus. And the rest of his life was about that call. It's an incredible story. But I want us to see tonight that this is not an exclusive account. It's a powerful account. It's, It's a crazy account. But it's not an exclusive account. This is not something God did one time. God changes stories. So I want us as as our foundation to shift the focus from Paul to us. Our story, your individual personal story. And to do that, I want to give us three realities about your story. Here's the first one. As a follower of Christ, God has radically changed 
your story. That sounds elementary, but it's, it, it needs to be discussed. As a follower of Christ, God has radically changed your story. God changed Paul's story in Acts chapter 9, and God changed your story if you are a believer. Paul had set out with a plan, but God had a way bigger purpose than Paul's plan. I had a plan for my life, but God had a greater purpose. If you're a believer in Jesus tonight, that was your story. You had a plan, but God had a greater purpose, and he saved you. Some of my favorite Bible verses that show the, the difference between who I was in Christ and who I, who I was without Christ and who I am in Christ came from the pen of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and I want to read a couple of those for us tonight. But before I do, I, wanna, I want us to, to not see these in a way we may have seen them before. We're going to read a couple of verses that if you've been in church any length of time, you've heard. And you may be seeing them on a bumper sticker, on a t-shirt, or on a coffee cup somewhere. But I don't want us to see these as just verses we've heard before. But this is your story if you are a believer in Christ. These verses that we're going to read are your story if you're a Christian. And my story. My favorite passage in God's word is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Here's what it says. It'll be on the screen. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, if that was a little jumbled for you, let me boil it down. You were dead in your sin, a child of wrath. And probably the best two words in God's word are verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If you are a Christian in the place tonight, that is your story. You were dead but God. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is another one of my favorite verses. And, and a year or so after I became a Christian, I read this verse and it knocked me upside the head. And I thought, I want that verse somewhere where I can always see it. And so I went down to a tattoo parlor and I got it tattooed on my wrist so that no matter what was going on in my life, if I was in sin or if I was acting crazy or whatever was going on in my life, I was reminded of the fact that I am a changed person in Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If you are a believer, that is your story. You say, man, Scott, why are y'all fired up about this? I hear people all the time. Maybe they grew up in church. Whatever the story may be. And they say this, they say, I just don't have really a powerful testimony. I just don't really have this crazy black and white story. I don't have this, I was running down towards hell and God saved me. I don't have this amazing testimony. I want a testimony like Saul. You were dead, but God. If you are a follower of Christ, God has radically changed your story. What's the point? 
My point is don't misrepresent God's grace by minimizing your story. When you talk about how unexciting your story is, that misrepresents the amazing grace that God gave you to save you. Don't minimize God's grace by minimizing your story. Every person who has been saved by grace has a beautiful, amazing testimony. For me, my story goes like this. I was born in Southern California. When I was seven years old, my family moved here. And I grew up here in Las Vegas as a typical Las Vegas kid. Church was not a part of my life any, in any way. I didn't hate Christians or church or anything. I just didn't have any context for that. I just didn't know a lot of Christians. I, I didn't grow up around that scene. And so I just was kind of indifferent. Sundays for me were about NFL football. Go Cowboys. All right. Night crew some Cowboy fans. Man, that was rough in the morning service. I'm just going to throw it out there. That was my life. Sundays were, were about football. When I was 16 years old, my best friend growing up, Kyle Allison, for the very first time in my life, invited me to church. So I'm a 16-year-old kid, and I walk into a church for the first time. And I'm just going to put some of you at ease this morning or this evening. It was weird. Like the first time I went to church, everything that was going on was freaking me out a little bit. And it's okay if you're here tonight and you're like, yeah, that's where I just was during that whole worship time. That was me. I was like, what is happening? If you don't have any sort of context for that, just think about it. We're used to that here, but I didn't have a context for that. And all these people are crying and lifting up their hands and, and, and singing, and I'm like, what is going on? But for some reason, I, I kept coming. I know now that I was God drawing me to himself. But for eight months, I just sat in the back with my buddy, and I just listened. And the guy would get up, and he would yell at me, but... I didn't mind it. I was like, okay, I'm enjoying this. And then I started meeting some cool people that weren't weird, that actually did life together and it was good and would actually hang out with me and, and, and wanna know about my life. And I saw genuine community. I had some friends at school, but nothing like I was experiencing within the church. And for eight months, I was just, I was just blown away by what was happening. And in a summer camp in 2003, in a summer camp auditorium, it might have looked like a camp service, but for me, that was my road to Damascus. And God reached into the place that night, and he changed me. He saved me. And I didn't know all the answers. I still had a lot of thoughts and doubts, and I wasn't walking out of there quoting scripture. But I knew something happened that night, and I was changed. That's my story. A couple years later, I met an amazing young lady in the ministry that I was serving at in the church here in town, and uh, we started dating, and, and we got married, and now that's my wife, Candace. and, and uh, Candace has a very different story than me. Candace grew up in a home where the gospel was talked about a whole lot. Sundays were about church and community, and that was something that was very normal for them. And she grew up watching VeggieTales, and I didn't know what a VeggieTale was. <laughs> but that's my wife. And as long as she can remember, when she was six years old, she says that she had genuine affection and love for Jesus Christ when she's six. And that's amazing. And some people would say that Candace's story is not that good and Scott's story is better because he had 15 years of walking outside of Jesus before God saved him. That's a lie from the enemy. She was dead, but God. I was dead, but God. Amazing grace, both stories. Amen. 
Your story is a miracle of Jesus, no matter how it unfolded. Don't believe the myth of a good testimony. If you are a believer in Christ, you have a powerful story because God saved you when you didn't have to. This myth of a good story was never made more real to me uh, than when I started having kids. My wife and I have three kids. I'll put a picture of my family on the screen. That's my family right there. Um, love my family. I'm a blessed man. Uh, that's my wife, Candace, next to me. And uh, the little boy next to her is, is Bryce. He's our five-year-old. The sassy thing to my left is, uh, is Avery. That's my, she's almost four. And then the concerned baby in my wife's arms is, uh, is Blaine. And here's what I'm, and parents will understand this. Here's what I'm praying for my kids. I'm praying that they don't have a good testimony as far as the world's concerned. Which means they live a life on their own and they go through hell on earth just to get saved years and years and years down the road. If God chooses to do it that way, I, I trust him. But I'm praying that since my kids, everything about my kids' life would be about Jesus. And so as long as they can remember, they would have genuine affection and love for the Lord. And so everything in my house is about Jesus. To the point where you'd be like, Scott, geez, chill. Everything in my house is about Jesus. If I'm playing with Legos with my son Bryce, I'm talking about how amazing it is that God gave us Legos to play with. And if I'm talking about princesses with my daughter in pink, I'm talking about how amazing it is and God's so good because he gave us princesses to enjoy. And I'm talking about Jesus, why? Because I know I can't save my kids, but I want an environment in my house where everything about them is about Jesus. And for as long as they can remember, they have genuine affection for the Lord. And that would be a, a powerful, if they ever get up on a stage and talk about their story, it's powerful because they are dead in, in, in their trespasses and sins, but God. I want us to see today that your story is a miracle of Jesus. You were saved by an amazing grace. My story is a story of amazing grace. Candace's story, amazing grace. We've shared several times here at Hope about a man named Cody Huff. And I asked him yesterday, I called him and asked him if I could just briefly share his story. But if you don't know Cody's story, he's a man that literally went through hell on earth of homelessness and drug addiction. And he went through it all and God saved him with amazing grace. All of those are testimonies of God's amazing grace. If you are a Christian, you have been saved by that grace, whether you were 6, 16, or 60. Your story is not random tonight. Your story was designed by a good God. People say, and I understand what they're saying when they say this, but people say, I found Jesus. The reality is, you did not find Jesus. Jesus found you. You don't find something that's not lost. Just imagine how the Bible would play out if in, uh, in Acts chapter 9, the story went a little differently where Saul was talking about just walking down the road to Damascus. And yeah, I'm going to go hurt these Christians and stuff, but I'm also kind of feeling in my spirit that I need to turn over a new leaf. And I'm just going to walk and, and look up to the sky and I hope, God, are you there? I want to talk to you. I want to speak to you. God, would you speak to me today? Because I want to change. That's not the story. The story is that he had a plan and God interrupted it and said, stop. You're mine. New plan. Don't misrepresent God's grace by minimizing your story. You were changed radically if you're a believer tonight. You were dead, but God. Second point tonight as a follower of Christ, your sin is not separate from your story. Your sin is not separate. 
from your story. I believe that God didn't save the Apostle Paul until he saved him to give him a powerful testimony. His unique powerful testimony. God saved my wife when he saved my wife to give her a powerful testimony, her unique powerful testimony. But Paul, we see in the pages of scripture after Acts chapter 9, he has opportunities to speak to people that he would never have opportunities to speak to if he was not a Pharisee. Cody Huff now has a ministry in our city ministering to homeless people and drug-addicted people. I could never have those conversations because I haven't been where Cody's been. So God has used Cody's story to speak directly into the lives of people that are where he was. But God. The same is true of you. Your story was given to you and God wrote it into your story so that you would use that as a testimony. And that's all your story. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Jesus, all, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is all about using people who don't, who don't think they have it all together. The people that think they have it all together sometimes aren't used by God because they think they have it all together and they don't need God. But when you realize that you're broken and messed up and you are desperate for a Savior, Jesus uses you. Jesus has given me countless opportunities to share my story. To, to share the story of how before Christ, who I was and how God saved me and, and who I am now because of Christ. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Your sin is not separate from the all things category. Your sin is not exempt from the all things category. You see, when we tell our story, we try to hide it because we want people to think we're better than we are. I want people to think I'm better than I am. And so the church is sometimes looked at as a place of perfect people. And we know that's not true, right? We know that's not true. But people look at us as, I can't walk in there because I'm not perfect like you. But if we started to use our sin as a megaphone for God's grace, people would understand, hey, come to the broken place, people, because we're here. We're not perfect. We're broken. But God is great, and God has saved us despite us. Your sin is not separate from your story, but it's not central to your story either. When I tell my story and when you tell your story, we shouldn't be talking about how bad we were. We should talk about how good God was despite how bad we were. The story is about him saving us despite us. John Piper says, what defines us as Christians is not that we have come to know him, but that he took note of us and made us his own. I am not the hero of my salvation story. Christ is. And the stuff that happened in my life, and even as I began to follow Jesus, the struggles that I had, I use now as a, as a megaphone for God's grace. Our boy Paul did that too. He used his sin as a megaphone for God's grace. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, look what it says. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into his service. Even though I was formerly, here's the sin, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. All throughout history, God uses broken people, their sin included, just like he tells Ananias in Acts 9, as chosen instruments. 
I want to give you a biblical reality that I hope encourages you and challenges you that your sin is not separate from your story. Look at it on the screen. Joseph was abused. Job was bankrupt. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Moses had a speech problem. Rahab was a prostitute. David was a murderous adulterer. Jonah was a coward. Noah was a drunk. Peter was a liar. Paul was a mass murderer. God specializes in using broken people to do powerful things. Your sin is not separate from your story. Last point tonight. As a follower of Christ, you are responsible to steward your story. As a follower of Christ, you are responsible to steward your story. We've, we've looked at stories tonight, uh, my story, Pastor Cody Huff's story, my wife's story. And like I said, if we had time, we could go around the room and hear amazing testimonies of how God has changed people. But here's the common denominator. You didn't start your story. Paul didn't start his story. There was a sovereign writer behind the scenes, but we are responsible to steward our story. And I love what Paul does in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, like we talked about. He got healed, he got baptized, he got some food, and he started preaching Jesus. He understood that I had been given this story. He didn't go off for three days and journal about his experience and just get with his, have some me time for a minute. He didn't go off and, and try to figure out what it all meant. He said, I don't know what's going on, but I'm preaching this because it's changed me. And in the New Testament, when people meet Jesus, it is impossible for them to stop, to not talk about it. When Jesus heals blind people or raises people from the dead or heals lameness or that he healed a woman that's been bleeding for years and years and years and years and years, immediately it says that they go into their cities and they just can't shut up about it. When you encounter Jesus, you can't keep it quiet. And if there is nothing else that social media has taught us, it is that we love to share things. And you guys all know who I'm talking about. That person on your feed that you go, why? Why? I've seen that picture of your food. I've seen your nails. I've seen the selfies because you post 100 a week. I've seen it. But we are natural sharers. Sharing is not the issue in our lives because we love to share. The issue is what are we sharing, and it doesn't matter. God forbid the people that follow us on social media and otherwise would know everything about us. They would know what park we took our kids to, what movie we saw, how, what, how many miles we ran, because we posted that thing where everyone could see how many miles you ran, and you posted all that stuff, and you share, 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 but those people never hear the story of how you were raised from death to life. God forbid the people in our lives know everything about what we do except the fact that we were changed by Jesus. As followers of Christ, you are responsible to steward your story. Chuck Swindoll said, because God gave you your makeup and superintended every moment of your past, including all the hardship, pain, and struggles, he wants to use your words in a unique manner. No one else can speak through your vocal cords. And equally important, no one else has your story. All over the room tonight represented are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of relationships. Can you imagine what would happen if the people of Hope Church started being storytellers of God's grace? If 
over the next couple of weeks, there was conversations at Starbucks about how Jesus changed your life on your road to Damascus. And you were meeting with friends over Chipotle burritos and talking about God's grace in your life. Could you imagine the impact on our city and on the kingdom if that's who we were as people of God, as storytellers? As we close tonight, I want to give us a few guidelines to sharing your story. Uh, Pastor Vance did this a few years ago, and I'm borrowing that for this message. He gave us three guidelines for sharing your story just to, to help us practically as we go out of here tonight and how to share your story. Here's the first thing. Keep it short. Don't preach a sermon. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind, and the Pharisees keep coming to him and keep saying, okay, okay, tell us again what happened here. What happened with, with this man, and what did he do? And, and give us all the details. He says, look, I've already told you, I was blind, and now I see. In this sermon, I shared my story in about three minutes. You should be able to share your story of who you were before Jesus, how he rescued you, and now who you are in Christ in about three to five minutes over a coffee at Starbucks or at the park as your kids play. Keep it short. Second thing is keep it Christ-centered. Who is getting the glory for your story? You are not the hero of your salvation story. Jesus is. So talk more about what he has done, not what you used to do. Keep it Christ-centered. Lastly, keep it word-driven. The Bible will add testimony and power to your story. Use, the, use, like we did today, use an example of saying God changes stories. Let me show you a guy named Saul in the Bible. And this is what happened to me. The Bible will add power to your story because it shows that God has changes people. That's what he does. Keep it short, <clears throat> keep it Christ-centered, <clears throat> and keep it word-driven. I hope as we seek as a church to be storytellers that you are encouraged tonight to know that God has radically changed your story if you're a believer. That your sin <clears throat> is not separate from your story. And that you are responsible to steward your story.